Happy Friday, Radicals. It's Friday, and on Fridays, we do Q&A, Ask the Financial Planner Anything You Want. And today, I've lined up nine questions. There's some good ones. Number one, I've got cash. Should I buy a house or should I get a mortgage? Uh, buy, buy a house for cash or should I get a mortgage? Number two, can I invest and should I invest in speculative biotech stocks through my Coverdell ESA? Number three, I'm a physician trying to figure out the differences between private practice versus working at an academic teaching hospital. What should I do? Four, business deductions. Should I take them or not? Five, multi-generational living. Good idea? Number six, disability insurance. What do I need to know? Seven, 529 plans. What's the, what are qualified uh, distributions and how do I actually work the details of that? Eight, inflation. Why do I sometimes do inflation-adjusted returns and why do I sometimes not? Nine, Chris says, I want to give money to my nephews. How do I do that if I don't want to necessarily allocate it toward higher education? Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Friday, December 12, 2014. Thank you for being here. I've got a great show lined up for you today on Friday Q&A, and these are going to be interesting. I hope you enjoy. You know what? In fact, I'm going to cut the intro short. Usually, you can listen to the fancy music, and let's get right into it. I've been receiving some great questions uh, from you guys, and these questions are really fun to answer. I really enjoy them. Keep them coming. If you'd like to get a question answered on a show like this, come by the show page. Go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com. Go on your phone or go on your computer and leave a message. You'll see a little button that says, send us a voice message. Just leave a message there. I prefer getting calls calls versus emails, although I am willing to consider the emails as well. So you can email me questions, joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com, and they can get on questions for today. I've received some really fun ones. There's one or two that uh, I wanted to answer today, but uh, they're a little bit too in-depth. So I decided to just to line up nine, that some of them that I'll be able to answer quick. So let's kick it off here with a voicemail from Lee. Come on, Hi, Lee. Hi, Joshua. This is Lee. I got a question for you. I wanted you to cover more about the topic that you touched on the other day in the interview with the gentleman and the three sons that bought their homes in cash. You uh, mentioned uh, quickly about how uh, the the topic of buying a home in cash versus buying a home and uh, having a mortgage on it. Um, Specifically, where I'm interested in is if you have the cash, but instead you invest that, and then the the differences of how, how... how much better off you would be in either one uh, of the scenarios. So I thought that maybe you could uh, cover something like that on one of your Friday uh, question answer shows, just what you think is better, uh, paying cash or getting a mortgage and investing the difference. Um, hope to hear your answer. Talk to you later. Bye. It's a good question, Lee. And usually I think most people would expect that immediately with a question like that, you go to a calculator. But I'm going to point out where the difference is and the difference is in your question. Uh, and when I first heard it, I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. I did a whole show on should I pay off a mortgage or invest, uh, which, by the way, make sure – I was going to respond to Lee and say, listen, you, you just go listen to the show. Then I realized it is a different question than things I've answered on the previous show about should I pay off debt or invest. If you haven't heard that, Lee, go and listen to episode 95, which is called Early Retirement Frequently Asked Questions, Should I Pay Off Debt First or Should I Invest? And that was with Joe, a.k.a. a rebel spy from the Money Mustache Forums, radicalpersonalfinance.com slash 95. But it's a different question. 
But the answer is very clear in the way that you ask the question. And if you actually listen to the question, in fact, I'm going to listen to just the first Hi, Josh, part well, of this, this here Lee. again. I had a question for you. I wanted you to cover more about the topic that you touched on the other day in the interview with the gentleman and the it's three sons up. that bought their homes in cash. You uh, mentioned uh, quickly about how uh, the, the topic of buying a home in cash versus buying a home and uh, having a mortgage on it. Um, right here. Specifically, where I'm interested in is if you have the cash, but instead you invest that, and then the uh, the differences of how, how, how much better off you would be in either one uh, of the scenarios. And in that, that's the question, is that part there where you said, if you have the cash and you invest that, how much better off would you be in either one of the scenarios? Hands down, every single time when the question is phrased in that manner, every single time investing it is the right situation. And the reason doesn't have to do with mortgage versus not mortgage, but it has to do with investment versus consumption. So when you pay cash for a house, a house that you live in is a consumption item. It's not an investment. It may be a, an, an excellent consumption item to have, and it may be a really great decision to make because it fits the needs of your family, but it's not an investment. The house that you live in is not an investment. It is a consumption item. Now, you should also look to minimize that cost as much as possible. So be intelligent. Just because it's a consumption item doesn't mean you shouldn't try to get a good deal on it. Just because it's a consumption item doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to choose wisely in a neighborhood that is likely to grow and appreciate in value over time. Just because it's a consumption item doesn't mean that you can't improve some stuff about the property so that when you sell it, you can make some money. Just because it's a consumption item doesn't mean that you can't rent out a spare bedroom or put a little storage shed in the back and rent that out to your neighbor or something like that. But the point is, if the question is consumption versus investment, every single time the investment should win, assuming that the investment succeeds, assuming that it's well done and carefully done. That's the question that you're asking. And that was what my issue was with uh, Steve Maxwell when we got into it about when his children, when he talked to them about you know paying cash for a house, which I thought was just an amazing story. But I really don't think that I, at this point, I respect why he did it. But as, as came out in the interview, the specific reason why he encouraged his, his, his children to buy their houses was based upon the idea of not owning, owning property, excuse me, not owing any debt from a religious conviction perspective of the fear of not paying it off. And I think that is, you know, uh, go for it. That that makes sense to me. But the if the that's the that's the concern. So so to illustrate my consumption versus investment decision. Pretend that you at we'll pick on Steve Maxwell's kids. Let's pretend that at 23 years old or 24 years old, you have $100,000 saved. And your question is, should I take this money and should I pay cash for a house or should I invest in a house? Well, let's assume that you're going to spend $100,000. What I would do is I would put the $100,000 into an investment house. Then I would take the cash flow and I would mortgage my primary house and I would take the cash flow from that investment house and allow that investment house to pay the mortgage on my primary house. Then at the end of however long the term is, let's say I'd say that at the end of 30 years, I'm going to now own two houses. And what my tenants have, have done for me is they've paid off my personal mortgage. I never had to pay that. I never had to make a mortgage payment. 
Now, if you're scratching your head saying, well, how does that all compute through? You, the reality is you can't do it quite that simple of one versus the other. Because the flip side, if I were going to argue the other side of that discussion, someone would say, well, you have your income, so you could just take that income and you could go and you could buy rental houses. Yeah, but how long is it going to take you to save $100,000 again? That's the question. So if the question is, should I invest the money versus should I consume it? Every single time, the investment is going to win, assuming that the investment is done well and the investment doesn't suffer loss. That's the danger. So the danger in the scenario I just outlined is let's say that you make a terrible investment and you buy a house, you suffer a total loss on the house. Maybe you have a fire, you don't have fire insurance, you've lost your entire investment. You're in trouble. So that's why you need to invest wisely. But again, investment versus consumption, financially, investment is always going to win out over consumption. Well, then shouldn't we at some point consume? Yes, I think we should at some point. And so that's the real question. So let's say instead of it just being simple one versus another, 24-year-old, $100,000, and should I buy a house to live in or should I, or should I buy a rental house? Let's say that someone a little bit older, a little bit more established. In my mind then, and, and maybe a little bit more money, and it's, and it's thinking, well, what's the right fit for me? In my mind, this is all about ratio. Have you established a portfolio, a wealth Uh, Are you wealthy such that your investments are enough to sustain your income? As you build that wealth and once you build that wealth, then I think you've got to – it's intelligent and wise to dial back the risk and eliminate any uncertainty from your life. Ultimately, I think all real estate investors really should be working toward a debt-free portfolio. I've worked with, uh, I've worked with client. I had one client that I worked with one time, and is like he was an addicted real estate investor, and he was totally addicted to the deal. But he never seemed, he never, he never, his his net worth was always growing theoretically, but he never had his properties paid down, so he never could enjoy the the security. He was always rushing to cover the next deal, to buy the next deal, to to, to kind of to run things and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Now he was just addicted to the art of the deal. That's not in my mind. That's not that's irrational, because the whole the only reason that you invest is to fund your lifestyle. So once you've established the lifestyle that you need, and once you've established the lifestyle choice, then in that scenario, cut back the risk. You know, pay off the mortgages. Cut back the risk and lower the risk so that you can, uh, so that you've eliminated the uncertainty. So all has to do with phase of life, cycle of life. Where are you in 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 your lifespan, and where are you with your investment opportunities? So how could I? How what's what would be another way that I could I could flip the discussion about consumption versus investment? If the question is always consumption investment, my answer is always right. Investment is always going to win. But let's say that at 24 years old, you've got $100,000 saved, but you have a well-established business that takes up most of your time, and you don't have much of interest at all in going and investing in uh, rental houses. You just want to – you have this business and you're making $300,000 a year at this business. Now, in this situation, does it make sense to pay cash or to get a mortgage? Well, it'd be a rare intelligent individual who's making $300,000 a year who only buys a $100,000 house. So most of the people in that situation would mortgage an $800,000 house. But in this case, well, it's, it doesn't even matter one way or the other because in three months, you're going to have the – you know, fourth month, you're going to have the $100,000 back. So it's all a matter of scale. And the key concern is are you building wealth that will support you and sustain your lifestyle? And in the beginning, the way that you build wealth, you have – well, not just in the beginning. The way you build wealth is by buying and creating assets. 
assets that give you cash flow. Assets that give you cash flow is the key. Even if somebody were, in my mind, even if somebody were uh, interested in not having any debt, not having a mortgage or anything of that nature, then I would still actually rather take that $100,000 and use it to buy an investment house, which, which using that investment house to fund me going and paying rent in the open market to somebody else because at least then – Yes, I have a rental cost, but my tenants are paying for my rental cost. And yes, I do have a, a an element of insecurity where if I lose my tenants and I can't rent the house out for the next eight months, what do I do? But at least then I have the potential of hopefully my house can appreciate and value more than the house that I'm renting at. And you got to work some arbitrage uh, scenario and, and make that deal work. But that would be my point, and and that was what my concern was. I was telling, talking to Steve about, is I would rather, and again, it all comes down to scale. If somebody has another, I guess, economic engine that's printing money for them, then great. You don't, you, you then in that situation, you probably don't need it. But if somebody, if I were working with a twenty-four-year-old, and this twenty-four-year-old is making you know forty thousand bucks a year, and they'd saved a hundred thousand dollars, and they're just working at an employed job. I would say invest the money. And here's the other difference. The key would be, the, what, what the much faster scenario would be, would be buy five houses, put $20,000 down on each of them, and by putting the $20,000 down, now you have five sets of tenants, all paying cash flow, mortgage them and let those tenants pay them off, and you actually run the numbers on five houses growing in value uh, over time with ongoing rental income, your tenants are paying off your debt, and you're left with the net worth of the house and the excess cash flow along the way. So it's kind of a nuanced question uh, in the sense of you there's, you have to have a margin of safety. Uh, if you only have $100,000, do you want to wipe yourself out and, and you have no money to cover some vacancies, no money to cover property damage? No, that would be foolish. But on the flip side, you want to have you need to have an investment. You need to have something that's going to create wealth. Houses that you live in are consumption. Houses that you invest in should make you money and make you wealthy over time. I believe the formula for wealth is let your consumption lag your investment. At the beginning of life, whether that's at a beginning age or right now, if, if you're listening to the show and you're first exposure to paying attention to finance, you have to buy and build and create assets that send you money. You have to build a money machine. You have to build an economic engine. And usually we do that with wages first. But the problem is trading time for money with wages is a very inefficient thing over the long term because you're always stuck trading time for wages. So if you can trade some of those, you, you've got to create, use your human capital, your human energy to create wages or profits. Profits are better than wages. Wages or profits, and then allocate that money toward other investments, investments that send you money. Then once you've set up that lifestyle where your investments, your money machine is there, where it's going to send you checks every month, now increase your consumption. And then you can consume forever. Because if you just consume the money that you have, and you're always focusing on consuming, 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 you never get to the point where you're financially free because you're getting money without working. That's what most people do. They consume everything. You have to put a, 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 a dam in the consumption, and that's the key.
So it's a fun question, Lee. I hope that I hope that helps. And I would say that there is no one size fits all answer to this question. But the key would be to say, in my situation, what are my assets? What are my liabilities? What is my cash flow situation? And what are my goals? And how can I make sure that I prioritize wealth? And is my plan going to result in my becoming wealthy if I do this? If I take all my money, have a million bucks, and I take that million dollars and I buy a million dollar house, I have a million dollar house, but I have no money to eat with. But if I take the million dollars and I buy a $100,000 house and I invest $900,000 of it, the $900,000 funds my $100,000, my, my, the rest of my lifestyle. That's the key. So it's all a matter of ratios. Paying cash for the house or not paying cash for the house can be good or bad, right or wrong, depending in the sense of if the goal is wealth building, depending on uh, whether or not, like depending on the scale. Depending on do I have other money, do I am having wealth? That's the key is the scale and the wealth plan. Hope that helps. Next question comes from Erica, and this one's really fun. She says, hi, Joshua. Love the podcast and really value your insight. I've been in the financial industry on the trading and research side for 14 years and will likely be stepping out soon to focus on homeschooling our two young boys. This will give my husband and me the flexibility to actively invest for the first time, as I won't be subject to all of the restrictions placed on employees of broker-dealers. <laughs> By the way, if you, um, that's one of the toughest things. If you work for a broker-dealer, you, you, uh, you can't do anything for yourself. Uh, our plan has been to build wealth and use that wealth as needed rather than focus on creating separate silos like college funds. But your show on Coverdell's got me thinking, and I'd love your opinion on my thoughts. Our wealth-building plans are rental properties and entrepreneurship. I'm thinking that the Coverdell could provide us a good opportunity to swing for the fences with early-stage biotechs, since we have particular knowledge in that area, which could greatly leverage the $2,000 a year limits. Or we could work with a team to create the investment infrastructure to put that money to work in the rental market. Assuming we find the right team and work through all of the important steps, does this seem like a good fit for the structure of the Coverdells, or am I missing something? I'm assuming that we would need to at least create the Coverdells before the end of the year if we do this. Uh, so I would love to hear back if this is a potentially promising use. I also see the downside of starting down this path and then leaving it to be mostly record-keeping, as we would need to stay on top of the accounts and then make sure they're put to use. Since our oldest is two years old, I expect we will have ample opportunities to use a few thousand dollars on their schooling. I'm not missing any specific risks on the exit strategy, right? I expect the exit would get messy if we ended up with a huge pile of money and our kids wait as long as long to reproduce kids wait to reproduce as long as we did out of all the possible problems in the world. I don't think that's too horrible. What do you think? Erica in New Hampshire. Super fun question. And I love how this is a good example of what I hope my show can spark is you can take all of your knowledge and your skills and your expertise, add to it a little bit of technical financial planning, a little bit of a few little rules, a few little regulations, and then figure out what's right for you. So super, super fun. Um, in essence, my answer to Erica is Yes, I think that's a perfect fit uh, for uh, perfect fit for this. Now, I don't remember if New Hampshire was on that list of states, homeschool states that are eligible. Uh, let me check. 
Okay, I'm glad I checked. New Hampshire is not on the list. And so if this is your first introduction, if you didn't hear the Coverdell show, one of the advantages to the Coverdell educational savings account is it can be used for uh, education expenses prior to college, so primary and secondary education expenses. And because Erica said that she's planning on homeschooling, one of the unique advantages to this, if you are a parent who plans to educate your kids at home or do some sort of alternative education uh, plan, then you can use this account to fund that. But the, there are only this because of the little wrinkle in the law, uh, homeschool students only qualify in states that actually define a homeschool as private as a private school. And this is dependent on state law. So uh, the states that define a homeschool as a private school are Alabama, California, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, North Carolina, Nebraska, Ohio, Tennessee, and Texas. So those are the states that write out define it. Now, in in states where there is more than one option provided, where in states where the state says whether or not the homeschool can be recognized, if the homeschools are, uh, I'm getting tongue tied. Those are the states where you can use it easily. There are five other states that recognize groups of homeschoolers to be a private school. And those five other states are Colorado, Florida, Maine, Virginia, West Virginia, and Utah. So in those five states, groups of homeschoolers are recognized to be a private school, but individual homeschools do not qualify. So I live in Florida, so I would need to work with a local homeschooling group, and then I could use that and pull the the uh, uh, benefits out of this out of this account. Uh, now, my data on that, by the way, if you ever need to look that up, is the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and I know that they have lobbied multiple times for that rule to be basically to fix that and to get the the guidelines updated so that all homeschool stu- uh, schools are treated as private schools on a federal basis, so that so that they could so this account could be used. So that is one limitation to your question, Eric, because New Hampshire is not on that list. So if you plan to move to one of those states, that would be important. That's up to you. Uh, but so you wouldn't be able to use it for homeschool expenses. But who knows if you're always going to homeschool? Maybe you're going to do some sort of combination. Maybe there's going to be some private school. Who you know? That's up to you and your family. Your family's plans. Now, in my mind, in my mind, the key. One of the key things you said is uh, biotech. And so for me, this would be a really useful way to, if you're going to speculate on biotechnology stocks, this would be a really useful account for you to do it in. I don't see a downside. Uh, You might, maybe those stocks are, depending on your level of wealth, maybe those stocks are a smaller capitalization, maybe $2,000, maybe you're you're investing at an early stage when the share prices are, are super cheap and you're swinging for a home run. This would be a perfect fit for this type of account. So you're buying into stocks when they're, when they're, you know, I won't say any when you're buying them when they're small and then you have a 10, 20, 30 times increase because a drug gets passed or whatever, you know, I mean, you know, the biotech investing world. So this would be a perfect scenario. And, you know, putting the 2000 bucks in there would be great. You may, may allow you to buy a lot of shares. And if you do that for 20, you know, here it's December, toss it in for 2014 and then toss it in in January for, for 2015. Now you got $4,000 in each of your kids' accounts. That's $8,000 that you can use to speculate on the biotech stocks. And the benefit, let's say you have a loss. Well, it's a deductible loss. You have to wait until the account has been completely distributed. But in that scenario, if you have a loss, you just simply – it's claimed as a 
miscellaneous itemized deduction on your Schedule A. And it is subject to the 2% of AGI limit. So that would be you know your downside depending on your other investments and your other um, losses. Uh, so you know it, it is still deductible is my point. It, and you can compare that to how the other entities that you would use to invest in that. Uh, with regard to the rental market, I think this is a lot tougher. Uh, and that's where... Uh, I think it could be used. I used some of those examples in the Coverdell show of investing in rental houses. But in this scenario, you could do it, but you would but you need to be good on financing. This isn't going to work for people who are just doing, you know, large down payments on traditional houses. You either need a t- form of real estate investment where you're not where you don't have to come out with a lot of pocket or you need to be working on it in a scenario where you're going to do uh, seller retains the note, very little money down, negotiated some way in that way. Or maybe you can set this up with one of the custodians that's basically allowing you to combine your accounts, your self-directed HSAs, IRAs, and ESAs. So maybe that would be a good solution for you. So I think this sounds awesome. Now, a couple of of other notes. Um, You don't have to do it before the end of the year. You just have to do it before you file your taxes. So you don't have to do it in December. Uh, But what I would do, if you're thinking about doing this, just toss the money, just start tossing the money in and put the money in the account and start accumulating it and wait till you, uh, and that way it's sitting there for you when you're ready to when you're ready to transition out of your firm to where you can uh, where you can do this, and when you're allowed again to to invest. And the as far as the record keeping, it's not that big a deal. Uh, and as far as exit strategy, that was the that was the other note I wanted to make. Exit strategy. Uh, is let's say here's your exit strategy. Let's say that in a in a crazy world, you, you, let's say you're a rock star with your biotech speculation, and you you pick some winners, and you turn two, four, six, eight grand, however much, into a hundred, two hundred, three hundred. Let's say they invent the, the your, one of your speculations invents you know the next greatest technology that saves millions of lives, and now you've got three million bucks sitting in there. What do you do? Well, remember you can always get into a five two nine account. And so you start bumping up against the age 30 limitation. In a biotech world, you've already cashed out of whatever your, your, your speculative deal was. So you, I would, so you get to 30. Well, now you just simply exit into a 529 plan. You use the money into a 529 plan. And let's say that your kids do delay procreation. And so therefore, you're limited as far as grandkids. Well, you guys use the money. You know, Go sign up for a, uh, you know, you're in your retirement years. You're 65 years old. Sign up for some education. Sign up for a qualified educational institution in Paris, France. <laughs> and go and spend time at that qualified educational institution at Paris, France. And pay for your educational expenses and your room and board out of your 529 account and use that to cover you for your retirement planning. So that would be what I would do. And then if if you wind up with too much money, whatever, pay the tax and it was it was a good deal along the way. You got a lot of deferral. So uh, there are ton there's so many exit plans. That's what always annoys me is it's a great account and it's such an easy exit plan. Dump it in a 529 and then any conceivable relate then you get gets you past the age 30 restriction. Any conceivable relation to you of any kind you can use the money for for their qualified expenses and if if no big deal whatever you can get the money out and and pay the pay the penalty so 
I think this is great. Choose your custodian carefully. Uh, I don't have any knowledge as far as these different custodians of what they're doing that's good, what they're doing that's bad. And so that's one of the, the questions. Research, especially these real estate custodians. Uh, I specifically didn't mention any names when I did this because I don't know any that are good or bad. I haven't ever done this. It's just it should work. And I know there are custodians that are marketing to this and setting up the infrastructure. So I think it's an awesome, awesome, awesome idea. Very cool. Next question. Let's get a voicemail from Peter. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm a longtime listener to the podcast. I enjoy it quite a bit. And actually, my father's a financial planner. So it's interesting to hear a different perspective than that which I grew up with. Uh, I've got a, a bit of a complicated business planning question, and I thought you might be able to uh, help me with it. Um, I'm a physician, um, and a colleague of mine is in a bit of an interesting situation, and he's bounced some ideas off of me as to how to deal with this, and I thought I would throw it to you and see what your thoughts are. Um, my colleague is a, uh, a specialty physician uh, in the Northeast and in a practice with his father. And his father is what you and I would probably consider retirement age, um, well into his 70s, but is a pretty vital guy and not quite clear when he's going to retire. Uh, and my partner is in his early 40s. Um, <clears throat> the setup that he has is, is interesting. Um, you know, I'm employed full-time by an academic medical center. And, uh, and again, my colleague is basically about an 80% um, higher uh, at the academic medical center, but with his father, 20% of the time has a private practice. And through the private practice, he gets to uh, enjoy the tax benefits of the corporation and do things like write off his car, uh, do some other things with benefits. And they actually also own the space they're in, which probably uh, has overhead of about $3,500 a month. So um, as his father's getting older, um, within our group, you know, there's starting to be pressure on him to... Uh, become a full-time employee of the hospital. Now, when that happens, you know, there's some advantages in terms of the hospital deals with a lot of things for us um, in terms of overhead and hiring and HR and things like that. Um, but um, you lose all of the tax advantages that he has. The only tax break we can get is in uh, a, uh, our retirement accounts. And our hospital actually has a very excellent retirement plan. Um, but uh, he would lose all those other tax advantages. So the questions that he has are, you know, in the situation he's in, how does he best size this up? Does he uh, try to leverage a higher guaranteed salary for a short period of time from the hospital in exchange for buying out the practice or the assets of the practice? Um, does he uh, keep doing what he's doing um, and hope his dad doesn't retire anytime soon to maintain um, the tax advantages that he has? Um, does he just you know, sell the practice when his dad retires and take the passive income from renting that space out, which is pretty high rent. We're in a northeast city with high rents. Um, you know, what, what are the different ways this can be sliced is really the question. So the, the call got cut off there, and but we have enough information to answer the question. I need to before I answer Peter's question, I need to clarify something in case you didn't hear the cover del since I, I kind of put in that example at the end of the previous question about uh, you know take the money, use it in retirement, go go fund yourself at school in Paris. Um, 
the restrictions, so you can do what I said. Uh, you can take the money out of a covered Dell, move it into a 529 account, and then you can designate, Erica, you and your husband, you can designate yourselves as the beneficiaries of that. And then you can use the money at those at an eligible institution. The definition of a qualified eligible institution is based upon an institution that is eligible for you for uh, participation in the student aid programs that are administered by the U.S. Department of Education. That includes virtually all upper all educational institutions, and it does include some educational institutions that are outside of the United States um, if they participate in the federal student aid programs. But I, I, I shouldn't have said Paris. It's unlikely. That, I don't know if there are any schools in Paris that do or don't. You have to research. But the point is, at 65 years old, if you've got too much money in there, you and your husband need to go back to school and get PhDs and live in on-campus housing or the equivalent so that you could pay for your housing with the money out of the 529 account. That was my point. So I apologize. I need, to, I need to be very careful with these tax issues and be specific. And in case you didn't hear the cover down where I went over the account where I went over all of that, then this is an important – that's an important distinction. Okay. Back to Peter's question. So, Peter, it's a fun question, and I don't think it's as complicated as you laid out in the uh, in this in the in the question. And to me, it's pretty simple. And it's not really very much of a financial question. It's much more of a business question. So, in summary, since I went back to the previous one, and probably you forgot the question is okay. This colleague in practice with his dad, eighty percent of the time he's working at a teaching hospital. What does he do? The dad's probably going to retire. Should he sell the practice, go to the hospital, etc. Um, in my mind, it's simple. What does he want to do? Because until he knows what he wants to do, there's not really a, a financial solution. The only way that a financial planner can help in this situation is if he says, here's what I want to do. What's the smart way to do it? Now, I recognize, obviously, you can't, uh, you can't know exactly what that situation is, and so you can't ask that kind of question in a voicemail. But that's the ultimate question. If he were sitting in my office asking me, I would say, well, what do you want to do with your life? You know, do you want to work for a teaching hospital or do you want to work in private practice? That needs to be the key. That is, that is the key. Uh, until he knows that, there's not really a financial situation. If he wants to go and work for a medical center full-time, then he should go do that. If he wants to run a private medical practice, a specialty practice, he should do that. Then we just make the financial stuff fit that in the best way possible. And here would be my way of thinking through that. How good of an investment biz slash business, how good of a business slash investment is the private medical question? Excuse me, the private medical practice. There's nothing magical about the tax benefits of a medical practice versus any other form of business. So if he doesn't like the medical practice, there's no reason to uh, to keep a failing business because of the, or a, a not fun business because of the tax benefits. Go get a good business if you're building one for tax benefits. I mean, you can start a, a Porsche racing team, and you could probably deduct more of your fun expenses uh, than you can with your medical practice. So that's what I would do: is if the medical practice, if he doesn't want to run it or he doesn't you know want to be involved than his dad wants to get out, then go figure out what business he does want to be involved in and make sure that it's a business that's in line with his lifestyle goals. If he wants to race horses, then he should go and he wants to, and he likes horses, he should go start a horse horse stable and that's going to allow him to deduct his pickup truck partially, whatever he's used for the, for the horse, benefit, horse amount. And that's going to allow him to deduct, um, you know, his, his, 
you know, his travel to the horse shows and all of that. The key is if your friend is deducting businesses that aren't associated with the medical practice, then that's a problem. And he's going to get, if he gets audited, he's done. You know, he's got to pay the, he's got to pay the, the, the money. And so he can't take tax benefits from the medical practice and then uh, transfer that over to his hospital. He can't just keep the ta- medical practice for tax benefits and then deduct all of his commuting to the hospital. It doesn't work. Uh, Unless he's going from his office to the hospital, then that's the only way he's going to deduct his trips to the hospital in the car. It's either commuting or it's business mileage. And I wouldn't mess around. I mean, there's not generally much business mileage associated with a medical practice. I wouldn't be deducting a you know a forty mile trip across town to get to a to a to, to a hospital. So don't keep a, a bad medical practice for a you know just for tax benefits. Ask yourself the question of do I want to do the medical practice? And I would split out the building as and view that as its own question. Hopefully they're disconnected. Uh, you know they're disconnected from the practice. And so I would split that out. Now that's the answer from your from your friend's perspective. And those are his three primary questions. What do you want to do with your time and with your life? Do you want to work at an academic hospital? Do you want to work in private practice? Uh, that would be the question. What do you want to do? You know, even if you get out of the private practice, you still don't have to take that twenty percent of the time and put it towards the towards the academic hospital. Take the twenty percent of the time and work on your on your um, you know Porsche Racing League and build your team up and and win some races as your as your racing business. Uh, that's what. So they're not necessarily equivalent. What do you want to do with your life? Number two, uh, the number two question is. Is this private medical practice a good business to have? And depending on the specialty, depending on the scenario, I mean, with the Affordable Care Act, it may or may not be. I personally have not met many, I actually haven't met any physicians who are still excited about the practice of medicine from a business sense uh, with the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I'm sure they exist, but most of the ones that I have interacted with are trying to get out in some way or another. Uh, the ones who aren't trying to get out that I do know are just simply young enough that they're they don't a, they don't really have a choice, uh, and they're still young enough that it's it's not about the business; it's still about the mission. But most of the physicians that I know are trying to get out. Uh, they've been they've and that's been before the Affordable Care Act. I had one guy that that said literally, I work twice as hard for half the money, and this was over the last ten years. So he had he had gotten out a long time ago. And so the question, is this medical practice a good business to have? Does it have a future post-Obamacare? Do you, can you structure it in such a way that it's actually going to be a worthwhile use of your time? Or do you want to just take your expertise and go and you know, sew together um, cleft palate lips of kids in Africa or set, go to Physicians Without Borders and travel to, to Mexico and treat, you know, travel to Haiti and treat earthquake patients or whatever it is that you want to do. Is that a better use of your skill than dealing with the practice? And then number three, the separate question is, is this office building a quality piece of commercial real estate that you actually want to own? Um, if it is, then keep it. That's disconnected from the medical practice. You could sell the practice, keep the building, collect the rent on the pra- on the on the uh, building, and let someone else pay it for you. And you don't have to deal with the hassle of running the practice. And so that may be a great scenario. That really might be. Uh, but on the other hand, it may be a, it may not be a good investment. So in that situation, get out of it. Um, you know, sell it. Uh, or do a 1031 exchange into another property if you have a better one or you can set one up. So in my mind, there are three completely separate distinct questions. What happens is usually in situations like this, 
people get get at least in my experience people get addicted to their certain business that they know not recognizing that there's there's really nothing magical about a, there's nothing magical about a medical practice versus a, a hospital or versus a again a Porsche racing team. Uh, whoever owns a Porsche racing team, they if they can make money at it, they're that's a, just as same. All the same tax code applies, regardless of the type of business. That would be how I would answer the question. And so it's not a. It's a. In my mind, it's a simple question. But those are the questions that I would answer. Once he and his father know what they want to do, once his father says, I want to retire, uh, or I want to keep working for another 15 years, and once your friend knows what he wants to do, I want, I don't like this, I want to just go and teach, I want to go do my 9 to 5 at the hospital, and then I'm done, and spend my time on the weekend in my garden, then, then it's clear. And so all financial planning starts with goals. And so your financial planner's job is to say, based upon your goals, what's an intelligent way of doing it? Uh, But if your friend doesn't have a goal of racing Porsches, then just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. You're better off spending time in the garden if that's what he enjoys. So I hope that's helpful. That's just what appears. That's that's what it seems to me. Um, I hope that's helpful. If any of you guys have more uh, ideas, leave them in the show notes for today's show. Next question comes from John, and he says, Hi, Josh. I was listening to your set of three tax planning podcasts in a row, and I got to thinking that I would like to know how to do correct planning and day-to-day activities to help with my tax deductions related to side businesses. I currently do a hodgepodge of activities such as keeping receipts and writing people's names on them with the vague notion that maybe these will count as a way to take a deduction on all of my eating expenses throughout the year. I know this is probably not enough. I'm guessing I need to take some meeting minutes during those lunch meetings to show what was discussed was business relevant, but honestly, I don't even know if that is enough. Do you have a good resource to refer me uh, to? Refer me to? Uh, it's a good question. And John, the best resource that I have found so far is, well, either is A, a resource from your tax accountant. And you need to work closely with your personal tax accountant. I'm not an accountant. I'm not an enrolled agent. Uh, I'm just an interested uh, interested financial planner. And so that's where I've why I've studied it. Uh, but the best resource that I've found on the, actually the specific mechanics, you would think there would be dozens of books on this. The best one I've found so far is a book called Lower Your Taxes Big Time by by Sandy Botkin. And Sandy Botkin is a, is a CPA and is an attorney. Uh, I think he used to work for the IRS and now he does these seminars and lower your taxes. But what's useful about his book, it's pretty hypey, but it's, it's still, it's a good one. Um, it's, it's pretty hypey, uh, but he's careful. And the key is he shows, he talks about little things like that of how to set it up, what to actually do. And surprisingly, there is some guidance from the IRS, but there is actually surprisingly little sometimes. And so what I would say is, I'll answer your question about the meals, because um, there is some there is some guidance on that. But the let me answer the meals first. Uh, off the top of my head, the IRS doesn't require, the, a receipt is not required. There's a little rule, the receipt is a good idea, uh, but there's a little rule that uh, if you have, if your expense is less than $75, you don't necessarily need to be able to produce a receipt for the uh, for the expense. But you do need to have a diary or a journal of some kind, and you need to illustrate who you were talking with, who you had lunch with, what you were talking about, what was the business purpose, what was the amounts, what were the amounts of the food. You need to have notes on this. And so you got to figure out a system that's going to work for you 
uh, that will be that will be smooth and and appropriate for you. As, but the key is to be able to illustrate. Yes, on this date I had this notes, and here's here's where I was. The key is details. So you got to work out a system that is going to work for you. Uh, an easy way, if you are in the habit of tracking every dollar that goes in and every dollar that goes out, and I think that is probably one of the most important things to do, is that you should set up a system for yourself where you track every single dollar. Now, the the average layperson or layperson listening to this show who hears that is going to be totally overwhelmed, which is why I don't harp on that too much because it's really overwhelming. Uh, I know I'm dealing with people from all different stages, and if somebody is just getting interested in personal finance, it's overwhelming to say every single dollar needs a name. But you really should. You should be running maybe Quicken. You might be running QuickBooks or a free alternative. You need Maybe it's an Excel spreadsheet, but every dollar, every transaction should be in that with notes and details about every dollar and every transaction. That will make your job a lot easier where on J- December 31, you're sitting down going through your books and you're just going through every single meal. And if you can go through that transaction, regardless of the account that you use, and I'm going to give you some tips that I figured out that might, that might help you, regardless of the account that you use, if you can look through and you find out that you ate out 138 times during 2014, and you look through and it says, lunch with Joe, uh, here's what we talked about, lunch with you know Susie, here's what we talked about, uh, and you can look and say, ah, 14 of these business of these meals were uh, 14 of these meals were a business uh, expense then that makes it very simple to break that out into a category and if you're preparing your own returns you just figure out what's business if it goes on your uh, okay well, I've got a schedule C for uh, Joshua sheets enterprises then I just pop those meals and uh, meals and entertainment onto you know the expenses for that specific schedule C it's not a big deal but you have to have the records now what's a disaster is if you're going through at the end of the year and all you have is your your end of the month uh, statements bank and credit card statements that's a disaster so if you can, I mean, you can do it with all with one account. There are some dangers in that, and 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 every accountant um, that I've ever met would warn against that, uh, especially if you're just doing everything on one credit card. So, for example, uh, I, if you were had a credit card, you're carrying a credit card balance, and you're trying to deduct that interest balance. Now, now you get pretty squirrely if you've got personal expenses and business expenses um, on that. So, there's some simple ways to do this. If you have a system where you're tracking every dollar, make a note of it, and if you can do it across accounts. You could literally just have one one account, and you could go through and keep all of these things. If you have simple businesses, if you have a complex base uh, business, uh, and what you described is just simply uh, just a very simple side business. Uh, if you have a complex business, this is completely different. But you could just have one account, and you go through, and you but you, because you record every transaction, and you notice, and you note this is specifically potentially deductible. What I would do if I had a couple of side businesses, and I know from parts of your email that that I didn't read that you have multiple businesses, I would keep a separate credit card for each account or a separate checking account. So you just get, you know, get, get a little credit card for business A and write with a Sharpie on it. This is the credit card that I use for this company. And that makes it very simple at the end of the year, just simply to go through and you know, every expense from this credit card, this set of credit card statements is for this company. Uh, Every expense on credit card B is for company B. And that can keep you, uh, that can help to keep you organized. You need a journal of some kind. And so how I've often done this over the years when I was a financial planner, I kept a calendar, a paper calendar. And all you need to do is I had every appointment on that paper calendar 
And every every appointment, I, you know, if I had a lunch appointment, then I know I have a calendar appointment scheduled. It, it's there, um, and I had lots of records. So if I'm audited on that, I could go back and pull up all of my software and show the records and say, here was when I scheduled the appointment, so it was in advance, and I knew that everything was there. And so I have the appointment, and then after the appointment, just jot down. You know, uh, in my case, it was it was financial planning terms, so I would keep notes at, of after the appointment that said, um, you know, I, I got to, you know, in our business, we would call it, I got a set of facts. I have the facts on what the personal situations. I opened an active case, which means there's ongoing work that I'm going to do and provide for them. Uh, this was a presentation. I presented a solution to them or whatever the, the situation was. That's all listed in my notes. And then as soon as I left the meeting, I would dictate detailed case notes from my files. So if uh, an IRS auditor is sitting in my office, I can just simply pull it out and every single appointment is there. Every single calendar is appointment is there. I've got detailed notes on exactly what we talked about. And that's key. So it may be as simple for you as taking a paper calendar and doing that. That would be a good idea also for your mileage. You want to make sure that you track your, your business mileage. So if you're going to go for a business meeting um, out to this, um, you know, to this restaurant, track your business mileage there and your business mileage back to your central place of business. And so a simple calendar can work. You can do this with a simple notebook and journal. And so you can establish a day-to-day -day diary. That would be a really good idea. If you're working on your business, you should keep notes. So December 12th, uh, today I spent two hours recording a show. I met with Tom. I did these certain things and that will help you when it comes to tax time. So the key is just track all your expenses and have notes on things. And then you can go through at the end of the year and you can go through everything and figure out where do I put this, where do I move this, where do I do that. Uh, that would be my best that would be my best suggestion for you. Uh, it makes a lot if you can get a good system and it can be as simple as a notebook or an Excel spreadsheet or quick and QuickBooks, uh, new cash if you want a free version. I've used new cash and GNU CASH. It's a free open source version of QuickBooks. Uh, that will help you a lot. And I would encourage you just, but again, simple notebook, simple calendar, great idea. Just write the details, write the details, write the details. Uh, get and read uh, Sandy Botkin's book. I'll put that in the show notes. Next question from Clarissa. Joshua, appreciate your show. As a newly married 26-year-old, I'm taking a huge interest in our financial planning and future. And your show has brought so much illumination to a completely new subject to me. I'm self-employed and my job allows me to listen to audio as much as I like and I love the long show format. The depth of the subject matter is great. An idea I'd love to hear more about would be the benefits and financial implications of multi-generational living. My sister and I are currently looking into buying an apartment complex to share with our spouses and our parents, hopefully providing care to them as they age and possibly child care and support to us as we grow our families. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Clarissa. Clarissa, I love this question. I think this is super, super fun. One of my beefs actually with the U.S. Uh, culture, the U.S. American culture is somehow We've developed this idea that we have to, you know, we can't get along with family, so we have to to be as far away as possible. I really like the uh, some aspects, uh, but I like this aspect of the Latin cultures and the Asian cultures. Those have been where I've had the most experience, where there's a much more integrated family unit. 
And in our society, though, this is such a tense subject. You know, there's the joke about the what is it? Failure to launch. There's the joke about the person that that uh, that um, can't you know can't get out of their parents' house. And we've built this cultural concept up that somehow the mark of a successful 18 year old is that he can get out of daddy and mommy's house uh, and you know get out and start paying their own way and start paying their own rent. And that the mark of a failure of a parent is if your 30-year-old son or daughter moves back in with you, uh, you know, that somehow that's a shame that your child failed to launch. Now, I get it if if you want to live your own lifestyle. I don't know what it's like to live with a 22-year-old son at the moment. Uh, so I don't, you know, maybe I need to kick the kids out and have my own space. I probably won't know until I get there, but I think this is this is one of those cases of, of of a confusion of causation versus correlation. That I think what parents want when they're trying to do this is they want their children to be independent and self uh, self supporting. And so, but my question is, do they need to be independent and self supporting? Is that measured by being out of the house or is that and being away? And so we're going to, they got to, everyone's got to do their own thing and fight their own way in the world. Or is that measured by their character and personality? Uh, with the exception of two years in college when I lived uh, outside of my parents' house, I actually lived uh, with my parents until I got married. But when I got married, I was one of I'm more responsible and and self like self directed than than anyone I know. And the reason I lived with my parents because I wanted to help them, and I paid rent uh, with the exception of some time in college. I paid rent to my parents every year that I lived there uh, since I was 18. So even though I was an adult child living in their house, I wasn't freeloading off of them. In fact, it would have been far easier and far cheaper of me to go and do something else and and live in some other way. I actually thought many times uh, to that I you know I'm going to go live in an RV or do something it would have been cheaper for me to do some crazy thing like that than living at home and supporting my parents. But I wanted them to benefit. I wanted to help them. I wanted to support them. And as their son, I am responsible for them. I feel I, I've. I've taken in our culture, most of us we reject that responsibility, but I, to me that's very important. So I wanted to help them, and why would I want to go and live alone and live in some cold, empty apartment when I can live in a warm, um, inviting house with people that I love? And so, in my mind, the question is not: is do you have to, you know, get away from your family and and be gone? Uh, uh, the question is: can you be responsible and live as a as a contributing person? Now. I actually, one of the things I don't like is many times, uh, specifically I've seen this in some of the Latin cultures and some of the Italian, uh, Italy was where I saw it. I don't, just one country in Europe where I look at some of the, some of the people in that culture, especially I, I get pretty harsh on, on men. And I say, why are you freeloading off of your mom? Like that is, you need to be, you need to be supporting your mom and you need to be helping her. Why are you freeloading off your dad? What's this nonsense of like, let me roll into the kitchen and expect my mom to make me food. That's ridiculous. Uh, but that's not necessarily in my mind. That's ridiculous. Uh, that's, that doesn't show the values that are important to me. That's very different than helping my mother. Uh, and there is certainly an exchange of, of value. I help her with certain things and she can help me. And so maybe if my mom enjoys cooking for me, great, but I'm not going to freeload off of my parents. That would be the question. So to me, I think people have gotten this cultural idea of wanting 
people to be independent and they feel like, well, if I just kick my kid out, they'll be independent. I'm telling you, just because your kid is living in a different house does not mean that they're independent. If you actually look at it from the financial aspect, which was your question, the financial benefits are huge, are absolutely huge. One of the reasons why you have one of many reasons why in this country you have a growing uh, wealth inequality gap uh, among different. There's, I don't have the data in front of me, so I'm going to be very careful here. Uh, but if you look through some of the data and some of the data on different socioeconomic classes, different ethnic ethnic groups, different parts of society, one of the themes that you can trace is the is the theme between uh, marriage and wealth. And in general, married people are wealthier than unmarried people, and so you have certain segments of our population in which marriage, the rates of marriage and the rates of single income parenting and single income households are dramatically different and there's a corresponding wealth inequality. And part of that has to do with just simply the concentration of uh, the, the decrease of expenses. Having two people living together is not twice as expensive as, uh, you get the point, multiple people living together lowers costs. And so this is the key. If you look at immigrants uh, down here, there are a lot of this is like uh, there are a lot of low uh, income earning uh, immigrant households. And I actually used to work with uh, I used to work on a farm, and I worked with a bunch of Spanish guys that worked on the farm. And this was entry level um, labor. And I, I, I speak Spanish, so it was easy for us to spend a lot of time together just chatting. And I would ask them about their lifestyle, how they do it. And the amazing thing is, these guys are. It was mainly men, and they were mainly supporting their families back in Central America, and they were spending sending massive amounts of money home. Uh, and the reason they were doing it is because they were willing to. to live many people in one unit. And that makes it made a huge difference for them. And as I travel in Central America, you can see in many towns, you can just walk down the main street and you can clearly see who has a, a usually it's a husband, who has a husband in the US working and sending money back. The, the, the niceness of the house is dramatically different. So if you look at it as a tool, if you can solve the relationship issue, and I think my goal is I don't want to hate my kids when they're older, and I want them to not hate me either. Now, it's actually a little higher than that. And many people say, oh, Joshua, you just don't have a clue what you're talking about yet. But I've always had good relationships with my parents. And I have some, this is not a parenting show, but but I do have some ideas as to what they did differently, that I've always had good relationships with them. And I enjoy, I love spending time with them. And I lived with them very easily as an adult, um, running my own independent life, caring for myself and supporting myself. And I was very responsible with everything as an adult, even though I lived with my parents. But yet when you start to add these things together and the cut, the decrease of cost of a family unit can work together, in my mind, it's amazing. So that's a, that, one of the primary reasons I live in West Palm Beach, Florida is because it's where my family structure is. And that brings huge, huge benefits. So the idea that you said about 
getting a multi-unit uh, complex maybe you got a, a a triplex or a quad quadruplex something like that or maybe you're maybe you're thinking of a of an 18 unit apartment building you're just going to take three apartments for for the family i think that is perfect and if you look at uh i i assume you don't see anything about your family being immigrants but i love to study how is it that new immigrants to the united states get so rich so fast the data is stunning and I said, well, what can we model from this, this, this new immigrant family in the United States that got rich fast? And one of the things is the prevalence of family. And if you take out and you bring in the ability of family with babysitters, the ability to run many businesses because there are many people around, just even just the, the lifestyle of what a great lifestyle it is for uh, – great lifestyle it is to be with family. That's what all the retirees sitting in my office uh, want – <laughs> What's your number one retirement goal? I want to spend time with family. Well, that doesn't cost anything, so why don't you fix that? Now, I don't want to be I'm not cavalier about people have relationship problems and many people need to get as far away from their family as possible. I get that. But don't confu- the thing that drives me nuts, it's a little pet peeve of mine, is don't confuse um <laughs> Don't confuse living with family with not or not living with family with being respons- financially responsible uh, in some way. Run the numbers. You know, if you can get just just look at and if you can find a situation that works where everyone has their necessary privacy. You know, I certainly didn't want to. Uh, there was certainly a difference when my wife and I married that that there was not a chance that I was going to go and live in my parents' house at that point. I needed to establish my own household. Uh, but if I could create a scenario where you know, there was a like you said, a multi-unit apartment complex, or a uh, in some scenario like that where there's enough space that you can have the personal space and draw the boundaries that are necessary. Man, the financial benefits of that and the financial implications can be huge. Especially, you said providing care for them as they age. Uh, my parents, um, that's what they did is they built a house, and that was a house that uh, I was uh, seven when we moved there, and excuse me, 10, they moved, they built a house and in that house we built an attached but uh, uh, an apartment complex in the house that was an entirely separate residence, uh, an entirely separate residence but within the house and moved my grandparents into that apartment unit. So my whole family had three generations living together for years and it was a big, big house and it was awesome because my grandparents could have their space, my parents could have their space, um, we as kids could have our space, and it was served us so well, and it allowed my parents and us children, because that was one of the major reasons why I actually lived there, was to help care for my grandparents, uh, that allowed us to care for my grandfather as he had suffered dementia for years and needed full-time, round-the-clock care uh, for the last few years of his life. He was completely incapacitated, and we couldn't we couldn't have done it without that. And so you would have had to look for an expensive solution and hire a nurse to come into their house or or pay, you know, down here six thousand bucks a month for a nursing home. But we were able to care with just a little bit of help, uh, um, a few nurses here and there part-time coming in for a little bit of respite care. We were able to care for my grandparents because of that planning in advance. And there's actually, uh, I don't have any data in front of me, but there's actually a, a large growth in the new home home construction. I was looking at a report one time from, I think, Toll Brothers, and they were talking about the, the increasing prevalence of this um, 
uh, in our society, where if you look at the older generations in the U.S. American society, we're facing this retirement crisis, and one of the major components of it is a long-term care crisis. And the generations that are in the middle, maybe this is you know, 26, your parents' generation, uh, 50s and 40s to 60s, this is a major problem. They call it the sandwich generation, where your parents need care and your kids need care. And this is a real challenge for many families. And there aren't enough financial assets to outsource the care. Uh, and so families are having to adjust and to cope. And one of those ways is by bringing the family unit together. So if you look at the data, what you're describing, even just in one house, is very clear. And the benefits are massive from a cost savings perspective. I think if you just solve the relationship issues uh, and fix that, which is, again, easier to fix than throwing money at the problem, I think, unless there's a long history of dysfunctional relationships, uh, fix the relationships and enjoy the wealth <laughs> that can come. I love the idea. It annoys me so much when people talk about, you know, his kid's a failure because he's 26 years old. Um, I know a lot of failures that live on their own that are, that are just because they live on their own doesn't make them responsible success. Rant over. <laughs> I hope that helps, Clarissa. Great question. I enjoy it. Uh, thank you for asking. Next question comes from Ryan. Joshua, I want to ask you about disability insurance. I hear a lot of people talk about getting disability insurance as they say you are more likely to become disabled than unexpectedly die. I also hear that it is not recommended to purchase disability insurance through your employer because if you ever leave the company, then your policy lapses. I'm going to start looking at policies in the next few months. So my question is, what do I need to know about disability insurance? Where is a place that you'd recommend to go shop for disability insurance? What should I look for in a policy to make sure it's a good one? What should I be looking out for to tell if it's a bad one? What would be a good price in a policy? Would you recommend purchasing it through my employer? Thanks, Josh. I really enjoy the Friday Q&A shows. Keep up the good work, Ryan. Ryan, great question. And I need to do a series on disability insurance. It's actually a, a real area of passion. It's also a real area of expertise for me. But frankly, I spent so many years I, you'll notice I don't think I've done a single show on insurance other than the show on do you need it, uh, like how to figure out if you need it and I'll, you know, where is insurance a fit versus other ways of covering the, the risk of loss. Frankly, I'm just tired of talking about insurance. After six years as an insurance agent, uh, I'm just tired of talking about it. So it's taken a while for me to kind of recover to where I can have a uh, discussion about life insurance and disability insurance. So let me give you a few, a few ideas that will help you. And at some point in time, I will do a whole series on disability insurance, and I'll give in-depth information. I'm just I'm not quite ready to do it. It's <laughs> not quite ready to do it. So, in my mind, if I could only own one kind of insurance, and I've said this many times to prospective clients, let me tell you why. Let me let me share it with you as well. If I could only own one kind of insurance, I would buy long-term disability income insurance, and I would skip every other kind of insurance. Let me explain practically why. I would, but I would skip health insurance. I would skip life insurance. I would skip short-term disability insurance. I might even skip uh, li liability insurance and property insurance, property and casualty insurance. Uh, I really would. And now, I don't think any reasonable, rational, normal person needs to skip those important insurance coverages, but I would skip them. Let me explain why. The most valuable wealth-building tool that you have is your income, and your ability to make income is predicated upon your ability to work. No work, no pay. So the ability to work 
is governed by your health primarily and then your capacity. Let's just call it health. That's health. It's governed by your health. If you lose your health, you got a problem. Now, I can recover and I can get a financial plan to recover from every kind of tragedy if there's income. Let's pick on something simple like health insurance. Let's say that I get sick or hurt and I'm unable to work and I get a serious health insurance situation, uh, health um, costs of health care, and I'm in the hospital and I rack up a million dollars of medical debt. And I don't die, but I'm not get, I get out of the hospital and I'm not dead, but I can't work. The million dollars of medical debt is a problem that I can solve in bankruptcy court. That is a legitimate bankruptable debt, and I personally would go and and uh, I I morally me personally from my personal moral convictions I could not declare bankruptcy, um, but I'm not I wouldn't put that on anybody else. There's a reason the bankruptcy um, law exists, and that's to protect people. We don't have debtors prisons anymore, and that's for a very important reason. So I personally. Uh, I wouldn't, uh, but I, I could get out of that with bankruptcy, and I think bankrupt—that's a good place for the bankruptcy court. Now, I would even—I would actually probably would legally declare bankruptcy, and then I would work to make restitution um, even past that voluntary restitution. Um, I shouldn't have even brought that up, but uh, point is, million bucks dischargeable in bankruptcy, so I can get rid of that million dollars. But let's assume in that situation that I were disabled. What do I do for income? What do I live on? I got rid of the million-dollar debt, but what do I live on? I have nothing to live on. But if I have disability income insurance and I don't have health insurance, I have a million dollars of medical debt and I have a disability income insurance policy that's paying me money. Now, I can still discharge that medical debt in bankruptcy court. But now I actually have some money to pay some rent, pay some lights, and pay her some food. So even though I'm disabled, I can still kind of keep my life together. So I would never buy health insurance before I would buy disability income insurance if the choice were between one versus another. What about life insurance? Many people have life insurance. Fewer people have disability income insurance. Pretend for a moment. I'm a, I'm a provider for my family. I have a young family. Pretend for a moment that I die and I don't have life insurance. Now, is this a financial problem? It is. It is a serious financial problem. But let's come up with some ways that I could that my family could recover from it. First of all, I'm dead and I'm gone. So although it's going to be a very huge emotional tragic loss for my family, from a practical perspective, my wife can move on with her life. She can work. Yes. Would it be a single-income household? It would. Would it be tough? It would. But you know what? There are lots of single-income divorced moms all over this nation and divorced dads that, that make it work. Is it easy? No. But she could do it. I'm dead and gone. She can get remarried. And maybe that'll help her. Maybe she can find someone else, and that and that would allow her to um, get all the benefits of a marriage relationship, including the financial benefits of that. If I'm dead and gone, there's guaranteed, as long as I'm fully covered with social with the Social Security Administration, there's a widow and orphan benefit that'll be paid to my widow and orphan. And that's a pass-fail test. Either there's a death certificate or I'm not. Excuse me, either there is a death certificate or there is not. 
And that's pass-fail. That's a very clear definition of death. That one we can usually – there are a few question, times when it's questionable, but that one's pretty clear. That one's, there's no contestability there. I'm either alive or I'm dead. She can sell the house. She can move. She can downsize her life, and she's free. Family can step in. This is usually what happens. Family can step in, can help with childcare. She can work to supply the needs of the household, and she can get through. Is it tragic? Yes. Is it avoidable? Yes. Life insurance is so stinking cheap. Term life insurance is so stinking cheap. I don't understand why everybody doesn't have a few million bucks of it. Um, point is, let's flip it though, and let's say I'm disabled and I don't, and 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 I'm not dead. Well, in case of disability, number one, I'm still here, so I have all of my expenses, and it's been my experience working with people who have been disabled that their expenses in some cases go up due to the cost of medical care, due to the cost of modifications to their lifestyle, to their house. So I'm disabled. And let's assume worst case scenario. Most disabilities are not worst case scenarios, but I like to plan for the worst case and hope for the best. Uh, So I've still got, now we have all the current expenses plus more new expenses. My spouse is not free of our uh, our marriage bond. She can't go and get remarried. If I require full-time care, who's going to provide that care? Either she has to provide that care or if she can't provide that care, she may have to go and work and we have to have somebody else provide the care and we may have to pay that person. Our marriage vows is in sickness or in health. So, you know, she's that's the that's the the I mean that's the beauty of marriage is that you have a backup plan in case of sickness and in health, but it financially that is tough. There's no widow and orphan benefit. Is there potentially a social security disability benefit? Yes, potentially. But the chances and likelihood of receiving it are abysmal. And you've got to be so incredibly disabled. It doesn't matter that I was some hotshot attorney making $300,000 a year. If I can you know, do any, occup- any job, and this is one of the details with disability insurance, if I can do anything, social security considers me not to be disabled. It's really tough. And it's getting worse and worse as social security's finances get worse and worse and worse. Uh, I mean, I've been through that fight with a good friend of mine. And it was, I mean, this, <laughs> don't count on getting social security disability. It's, it's, a, it's horrific. So if I had the choice, I would always choose to buy disability income insurance versus life insurance. And I did this many times with clients. If a client had a limited budget, Joshua, we've got $80 a month to spend. Guess what? We're going to spend 40 of it on disability insurance, and we're going to buy less life insurance than you technically need. Because I'd rather you have long-term disability insurance and a few hundred thousand dollars of life insurance than millions of dollars of life insurance and no long-term disability insurance. Uh, I'll speed up here. Property and casualty, same thing. So my house burns down. Guess what? There's a maximum loss. The maximum loss is the amount of my of my house and loss, and my mortgage. That's a hundred and what? Let's say it's two hundred thousand dollars. So let's now I'm in a situation where I got a two hundred thousand dollar bill. I'm in deficit. I'm in arrears on that. Bankruptcy court discharged, or I can recover. But if I don't have income, there's no chance of me recovering if I don't have the ability to create income. So uh, I'll take any kind of insurance liability. Guess what? If I don't have any money, um, no matter what the judgment is, no matter who sued me and won. You can't get blood from a stone. If I don't have any money, I'm, you know, it doesn't matter what the court says. I don't have any money. But if I got disability income, I can still at least pay my bills. 
and the court will take care of that, and they'll make sure that I'm not impoverished to the point of not being able to pay my bills. I'm not going to be, you know, cruising around in a Ferrari because of my fifteen thousand a month disability payment. The point is, I would always, always, always choose to buy disability insurance first because that protects against the one thing that's the ultimate disaster. If I lose my income, if I lose my income and I cannot work, I got to have a backup plan for that. So uh, statistically, yeah, depending on what statistics you read, you're two to three times more likely to be disabled for some period of time. This all depends on the statistic at an early age than you are to die at an early age. You're guaranteed to die, so plan for it. Um, it, But you're more likely to get disabled than to die prematurely. Uh, And I don't think death is as big of a deal as disability is from a financial planning perspective. Now, where to start? Um, Let me give you just a couple of quick hits, and I got a boogie on. where to go to shop for disability insurance? You need a good agent. I don't. I wouldn't buy the stuff online. There's two ways to get. Um, and the thing is, everyone knows about life insurance. Everyone is an expert on life insurance and what kind of life insurance you should buy. And oh, you should only buy ten or fifteen or twenty year level term life insurance. And you should go to lifeinsurance.com. Fine, go for it. It works. Everyone's an expert on that. They don't know what they're talking about half the time. But nobody has a clue when it comes to disability insurance. I cannot think of any way that I would know how to encourage you. Um, that to negotiate the disability insurance marketplace except to work with a good disability insurance agent. Um, an agent is going to know, because this is so occupation-specific, if you are a, an electrician and you're a tradesperson, that's very different than if you are a specialty brain surgeon. If you're a chiropractor, that's very different than if you're a general practitioner doctor and you need someone who has specialized knowledge of your industry uh, or who is at least smart enough to research it because different disability companies will cover different occupations. And the key with disability insurance is what is written in the contract. That's where all the gotchas are, is what is written in the contract. It is very difficult to compare. Unless you are a real expert with disability insurance, it's very difficult to compare one disability policy to another disability policy. You may be looking at one that's $100 a month and one that's $20 a month. And hands down, I would never even waste the money on the $20 a month one. I would always choose the $100 a month one. So I think you need a good insurance agent. Uh, I really do. Um, where to shop for it? Start by asking around in your industry and ask if anybody else does. This is very common if you're a, in a professional capacity. So let's say you're an attorney, an accountant, something like that. Um, then you can just ask around and and interview the people that um, – that your friends are using. If you're a tradesperson, it's much less likely that you know anybody that has has disability insurance. Uh, I would look for one of the large traditional, uh, uh, large traditional uh, flagship insurance companies, and I would look for a mutual insurance company. Uh, a mutual insurance company, in my opinion, for disability insurance makes a big difference. Doesn't mean I wouldn't ever buy one from a stock insurance uh, policy from a stock insurance company, but it does make a difference as far as how the company functions. Um, so your big four mutual insurance companies, if they'll write in your um, in your industry in, in the industry, would be. Um, Northwestern Mutual, New York Life, Mass Mutual, and Guardian. Those are your big four companies. I would consider working with an agent from one of those uh, or an independent agent if they're expert. Uh, it's a rare um, wirehouse. I know several, many of my friends that are wirehouse uh, financial advisors, very few of them are experts in disability insurance. But if you start with one of those companies, um, based upon my history, you could probably guess I'm partial to Northwestern. Uh, but if you started with one of those companies, then 
you could probably get started in a good direction. And if you can work with a decent agent uh, from one of those companies, they will be able to uh, help you with a company that uh, help you with a, a, car- a policy from a carrier that will serve you. So for example, over the years, um, I've worked with chiropractors. Chiropractors, you, none of those companies will write decent insurance for chiropractors. They're very risky. So I think it's, uh, you need to use another carrier that's, not, that's one of those. Uh, I, you know, if I had worked with a client who was a, a, TV, uh, a TV anchor, a TV host, and in that situation, I had, and, and had some health, unique health challenges, I placed the policy with Lloyd's of London, uh, their subsidiary that does that. Um, you know, so there's some little tricks that you can. I worked with a client who was a rancher and completely uninsurable from a disability perspective because on paper he made no money, but we were able to solve that problem with actually a cash long term care policy, which is an interesting solution that's no longer existent. But uh, for him, it worked really well is that we set up a long term care insurance policy that had a cash indemnity where instead of being a reimbursement policy where it would pay for his cost of, uh, of, um, of of expenses, it would just pay a cash payment if he met the con- the qualifications for long term care. So it was actually a really it, it worked uh, for him, but it's a very specialized scenario. So I would start there. Um, you need to be very careful about what's in the contract. You need to. That's why you need a good agent to explain it to you. And you can't expect some call center person, you know, who is that's their first day on the job to be able to explain to you because you're going to get into some important terms. You're going to get into what's the definition of disability. Is the definition my own specific occupation? This is you'll, you'll hear lingo like own occupation, any occupation, modified own occupation. There's some very technical legal language that you need to be expert in. And uh, is, is partial disability covered? Is total disability co- covered? Is partial covered? Uh, what are the terms of the contract? Does the benefit have an inflation option? How long is it covered? So there's a lot of kind of intricate details. Find an agent that you trust. I would start with those big four. They would, they will, they will. One of those, if you know someone or can call in there, a good way. If you don't have, pick pick one in your area. But a good way is in is to um, call in and ask to speak with the managing director of the office or the person who's in charge of the office and ask which of your which describe your situation and ask which person you should uh, you should work with. Um, and if you know somebody, I would rather go with somebody I knew that I knew knew their stuff when it came to disability insurance than I would, uh, you know, even if they're not one of those. It's just that's just my best attempt. Don't buy the stuff online. Find somebody who can help you with it. I will do some shows on the topic in the future in detail so that you can feel educated. But it's it, it, it's it's pretty simple once you understand it, and it's very much going to depend on your occupation as well. Uh, it's very different trying to write insurance for a roofer than it is for a surgeon, and so it's very unique. And you cannot judge anything by the price of the contract. The last two things I need to cover: um, you can't judge anything in disability by the price of the contract, because I could always change disability insurance contract price. And I literally, for the same client, same industry, same occupation, I could make the premiums go from $350 a month to $70 a month. But it's all in adjusting the terms of the contract. And so your agent needs to work with you to define what is the defi- you know, what is the um, what are the terms of the contract? And you can't compare it to group insurance because some group policies are great and some are occupation specific. So for example, if I'm sitting down with an accountant and I'm reviewing the AICPA, the association, uh, whatever that AI stands for, of CPAs, then 
I can review the terms of their contract. It's a standardized contract for a group. That's very different than some small company with 40 or 50 employees where the owner just went out and picked up whatever the first cheapest policy he, he could get was um, and, uh, you know, and bought it. Uh, and it placates the employee and they think, oh, I'm covered. But in reality, what they have is they have a two-year benefit that's only covered if they can't do anything. Like it's just – there can be some horrific um, – policies. I always would send my clients a, a, a cheat sheet, a list of questions that they would send to their HR coordinator, and it was about one out of 15 where the HR coordinator could actually answer just some very simple questions about the disability policy. So uh, the last th- – oh, the other thing I needed to say before I go on is should you buy it at your job or should you buy it individually? The answer is yes, and it depends. There are actually many important aspects to that it, that it depends on. Uh, a couple of just quick hits for you. If you can get insurance in the individual market, I would usually buy it in the individual market first. Uh, if you are medically uninsurable, then I would get it for the group and I would make sure to go in through the group uh, because there it's a lot easier to get um, than it is in the individual market where you're going to be individually underwritten. Uh, if you can get it in the individual market first, and then go into your group and get and pile the group coverage on top of that, you will be able to get more coverage total than you can get uh, if you do it the other way around. When you are individually underwritten for disability income insurance, you will be uh, you'll be asked how much coverage you have. And they'll never replace more than whatever ratio they're willing to give depending on your income. Uh, you know, at 60 to 70%, as your income goes up, they're willing to cover much lower. As your income is low, they're willing to cover, frankly, almost 100% of your take-home pay because the, the benefit is going to be tax-free to you, income tax-free. So uh, so that is one that is one. But if you apply for it individually, you get that. Then you go to the group. Usually the group is just going to add on. And so you can wind up in a situation where if you did get disabled, you theoretically could actually be earn, be receiving more money than when you were working. And that's what the insurance company is trying to protect against to cover themselves for adverse selection of people trying to get more coverage where they would actually be better off financially uh, disabled than working. But if you flip it, that's what they're trying to protect against. If you flip it, you get the group first. Let's say you get a 60% benefit with the group. You may be able to supplement that with an extra 20% covered by an individual policy, but it's not going to be as much. So that would be one reason to get the individual first. It's going to be dependent, though, very much on industry and what you're doing. There are some little wrinkles that can be useful. So, for example, if you're an accountant, if you're an attorney, one of these, an engineer, architect, one of these very conservative, safe professions, get as much as you can individually because then if you even if you leave and let's say you're an accountant uh, and an attorney attorney and you leave and you go to another occupation then your coverage will be at the best occupation classification even if you go and I used to tell clients even to go start a roofing company so um, that is another consideration for you so I'm sorry that there's so much data it is a complex industry I don't see any way that an, that a layperson can negotiate it without without a uh, without a guide I really don't because if you don't have somebody to guide you, I mean, there's just too many, there's too many areas where 
you can stumble and not know. I mean, you don't know what a guaranteed renewable contract is versus a non-cancelable contract versus, you know, you don't know what all these these terms mean. And so you're trying to compare a bit. Now, price is important. It is important. But you're trying to shop based upon price. You're like, this one's cheaper. I'll go with it. Yeah, but it's 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 worthless. So you got to be educated. And I don't know any way to do that other than with um, help. I really don't. Next question from Lane. Joshua, I saved for several years for my youngest son's college through a 529, and now he is a freshman in college. His mother and I saved about $80,000 in the 529 and another $30,000 in a separate savings account. We feared the government rules regarding spending. Now that he is in college, my question is with regard to the use of the 529 funds. For his first semester, I requested a check for $15,000 and have spent about $10,500, the majority directly to the college. I've maintained a detailed Excel sheet on every dollar of spending. Questions. So I'm going to answer these actually one by one as he goes through them instead of reading them and then answering. Do I need to report anything on taxes at the end of the year, either my 1040, his 1040, or his mother's 1040? We're divorced. The answer, Lane, is if all of the distributions from the account – are indeed qualified education expenses, which I'm going to show what those are on the next question that you ask. If they are qualified education expenses, then there is no reporting on your return. If you took a distribution from your 529 plan, you're going to receive a form 1099-Q at the end of the year from your custodian. And that form will illustrate how much came out of the plan. So they're going to show how much came out. And those the, the distribution is actually going to be divided between the contributions to the plan and the earnings. So that's 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 going to be key. If that's all qualified money, then you don't need to put it anywhere. You don't need to put it on your tax return. You don't need to do any, you don't need to do any reporting of it of it wherever. So if it's for qualified expenses, you don't need to return or or mark anything anywhere. So that's relatively easy. And I'm sure there's actually a lot of abuse of that. Um, we'll see. But that's that's the rule. You don't need to do anything. Uh, now if the if the uh, if you wind up where, let's say that you requested $15,000 and you only have uh, $12,000 of qualified expenses, now you've got the extra $3,000 to deal with. And so in this situation, you do need to actually report that. You actually will report it in two ways. Number one is you will report it as income. And so as you report that money as income, you'll put that on your 1040. I pulled up the 1040 to make sure I can give you the details. You're going to put that on line 21, which line 21 is other income, and you're going to list the type and the amount. So you report it there as income so that it is included for your tax calculation. And then because it is a uh, subject to a penalty, if you take a non-qualified withdrawal then you're going to pay the penalty. And so you're going to use form 5329. And it's listed right on the, on the form, uh, on, the, on, the, on the IRS forms. And line, form 5329 is called Additional Taxes on Qualified Plans, Including IRAs and Other Tax-Favored Accounts. Part two is Additional Tax on Certain Distributions from Education a- Accounts. And this is what, covered, is what covered, uh, covers Qualified Tuition Plans, aka 529 plans. And so that's where you would report that. You would calculate the penalty 
penalty. And then that penalty goes on to your tax return on line 58. And if you look at line 58, line 58 here says additional tax on IRAs, other qualified retirement plans, etc. Attached form 5329 if required. So that's the answer on tax reporting. Next question. Are there clear-cut rules regarding what is a qualified expense? For example, he needed an office chair for his dorm room. It cost $65. Was that qualified? The answer is yes. These expenses uh, and um, and pull up, uh, uh, pull up. Always go when you're ever answering these questions. First place you should go: IRS website. Pull up their publication on the subject. So in this case, it's publication 970, section eight, qualified tuition programs. Uh, what is a qualified tuition program and the expenses? So the expenses that must be required by the institution: tuition fees, books, supplies, and equipment. So any tuition and fees or books, supplies, and equipment that are required by the college are all qualified expenses. Special needs expenses are qualified if they're connected with enrollment. And then expenses for room and board, they are covered if they're incurred by a student who is enrolled at least half time, but it only qualifies up to the amount that the college says that the college estimates. So let's say that, I think you said you have a son. Yeah, son. So if you have a son who is living off campus and he's spending $3,000 a month on, a, on an apartment, but the school says that we estimate it costs $12,000 for room and board at the school, then $12,000 of that account is qualified. So it's either up to the amount that the institution says is the proper number or the actual amount charged if the student is living in housing that's owned and operated by the eligible educational institution. So that is what is covered. Dorm Office chair for a dorm room? No. It's got to be tuition fees, books, supplies, and equipment that are required by the college or um, the, uh, the room and board. And I wouldn't consider the office chair to qualify. Next question. Another example, repairs to his truck that he drives to and from a few times each semester, uh, drives to and from home a few times each semester. Is that qualified? No. Um, the IRS will never allow you to actually um, – deduct any expenses associated with cars with unless it's associated with a business or a charitable activity uh, or there are a couple other things but but the answer is almost always no with cars used for personal use so no that's not a qualified expense should I be saving receipts to date all I have saved is the electronic record of each expense not a paper copy of receipt um, not sure the answer to that question I would if you have receipts otherwise just save the, the electronic copy and your requirements I can't remember what the IRS rules on that would be at this point um, receipts are always good and important, but I think in today's world, it's probably changing. I should ask, I have a buddy of mine that's a, two buddies that are IRS um, revenue agents. I need to ask them this question. Uh, the, in my opinion, I think that they're probably changing, that if you have an electronic log and you have the electronic receipts, that to me would be, or the electronic record, and that's archived in some way, I think that would be important. And I would make sure that those are separate records. And if you have receipts, I would save them. Um, so it's always safer to, to, it's always safer to have receipts than not. It uh, doesn't mean you're not going to get it if you don't have one, but Always safer to do that. Any advice regarding how to keep the balance of the funds invested? Um, they're in the College Bound Fund and Alliance Bernstein product. No, um, no advice on that. Uh, I don't give investment advice on the on here. And and actually, even as far as how to think of it, if your son is in college, uh, I mean, this is going to depend on 
you're comfortable, how comfortable you are with volatility, the cost of the college versus the balance in the account, the potential um, investment performance that you have. It's just it, it, there's so many details that I couldn't I couldn't even make an intelligent comment on it. Two more questions. Question from John. Joshua, quick question. I've heard you mention on a few of the shows, let's ignore the inflation part of the calculation for now. Usually this is said in the midst of doing simplified radio math to preserve the flow of the topic. While I appreciate the simplification and continuity of a conversation without going down the road of every mathematical factor, I do scratch my head when you do this. Mostly this is because of the other times when people ask about the 4% rule in their withdrawals to which you correct them and say, if you want a 4% real rate, then you have to factor in inflation of let's say 3% and so you need 7%. What a huge difference. So how can you just wave off the inflation part of the calculation when talking about longer time horizons? Wouldn't the effect be even bigger? Perhaps it's the larger amounts in question uh, on these longer horizons and calculations that can make the inflation factor less. Thanks for any clarification you can give. Keep up the great show. I hope everyone decides to become a member. Me too. Uh, so answer that question, there are a couple answers. Number one, I may make a mistake. So for example, sometimes maybe I just simply mistakenly say, let's ignore the inflation calculation, and, uh, it, and it, I shouldn't in that situation. I could make that as a mistake. Uh, I do make mistakes, and I've learned that it's not so easy sometimes to actually (laughs) – it's hard to be precise when you're talking as much as I'm talking on these shows, and it's largely stream of consciousness. And I'm working to be precise, but there's so many little details, I'm sure I get some of them wrong, which is why I mean what I say. Anytime you ever catch me in a mistake, comment on the show and tell me. And if I find it, I'll listen to it and I will immediately correct it. And that's very important. I need the crowdsourcing. That's why That's why I say that. Uh, but in general, yes, it is simplified for the purpose of just simply doing not getting bogged down in all the math. But what I'll usually do is I'll usually use a plug number. Depending on what I'm doing, I'll usually use, you'll hear me use different numbers. So I'll usually, in my mind, use a plug number that roughly accounts for inflation. So my personal benchmark that I often refer to for investment returns is 10%. And that's just based upon, that's about the historical return of the of the generalized U.S. stock market. That's in nominal terms, not in real terms, meaning it's not inflation for adjust, it's not adjusted for inflation. So if we were adjusting it for inflation and we were going to use a 3 or 4% number, then I would just plug in 6 or 7% as the rate of return if I'm adjusting for inflation in my head. So I'll often do that. That's not technically correct. To be do technically correct math, you need to do the inflation-adjusted return. Uh, so, But usually I will skip that just to do rough math because it's enough for proving the point. So I often, you'll hear me use 10% or 6% because those are kind of my plug numbers. But the other thing I'll do is I'll often shorten up the time horizon. So let's say someone's asking me about a six-year goal. I'll shorten up the time horizon because I wouldn't use an all-stock portfolio in that scenario. I wouldn't use a 10% rate of return. That would be not right. So I'll often plug in three or four or five, and I'm just going based upon uh, a bond portfolio, a bond yield, or you know, uh, a CD of some kind. Uh, so I'm just kind of using a lower number and just doing quick math. 
if I've corrected people on the 4% rule and if I've made that comment about got to factor in inflation, my, then that is incorrect. The 4% rule, there are many 4% rules. There's two, but the one that usually comes up on this show is known as the safe withdrawal rate. So the 4% rule is the safe withdrawal rate, and those calculations are based upon an inflation-adjusted return. So there already is an inflation-adjusted return in that number. So... If I've done that, I, I may have made that mistake at some point in time. But to, to, to clarify it, usually I will either adjust for inflation with using a lower number or that's usually what I'll do. And I, and I was just partly covering my tracks, recognizing that when I'm doing a quick uh, calculation and I'm, I'm doing these things live, making them up off the top of my head often, which gets me in trouble sometimes, then I want to make sure that, you know, this isn't precise. If we were going to do this, I'm going to sit down and work it. I'm gonna, I need to do a proper inflation-adjusted return. Uh, the other thing, aspect of it is, depending on what we're talking about, people often have weird, well, the people often aren't conscious of actual inflation rates. So just because the generalized consumer price index is experiencing a certain inflation rate, that doesn't mean that you're experiencing that inflation rate. If you are living in a house with a fixed rate mortgage and a fixed mortgage payment over time, even though the inflation for the general consumer price index may be adjusting, that doesn't mean that your inflation rate is adjusting. And there are so many ways to actually personalize an inflation rate that I prefer to actually over time give specific if I'm doing if I were doing retirement planning, I want to specifically adjust each rate of inf each uh, spending category for an inflation rate. So housing, if somebody's living in their own housing uh, that's paid for or has a fixed rate mortgage, that's going to be adjusted much less than healthcare. So I want to apply a higher inflation rate to healthcare than I would to their housing or to transportation. That's going to decline over time because they're going to be maybe driving less or because their fuel cars are becoming more fuel efficient. So even though gas prices are increasing on an inflation adjusted basis, you can drive cheaper now than you could in the past of total cost of transportation for a better, higher quality product. So there's so many factors in it that I use. I, I sometimes will just short circuit it to try to cut it off. I hope, I hope that helps. I try to try to be precise, but <laughs> That's the challenge of producing media content is sometimes you can't be. Last question comes from Chris, and it's about uh, gifting. So he says, Joshua, I find myself as a recent new uncle, and I'd like to start contributing to an account for my nephew to use later in life. I would prefer not to use a 529 plan as he may simply not want to go to college and instead choose a non-traditional education, start a business, use the money for a house down payment, etc., I also would like to have this fund set up so his parents cannot draw from it. My brother-in-law is still very young and is not currently married or engaged to his girlfriend. I love them both, but neither of them are what I would consider financially savvy. As my wife and I do not currently have children, I would like to be able to make routine deposits into an account, preferably something with low-cost index funds instead of making a one-time purchase of some kind of bond. Do you have any advice as to the type of account I should look for, whether it be a trust, custodial savings account, or some other investment vehicle? I realize that if I do not contribute to a 529, there are no upfront tax benefits. But if it is possible to have these monetary contributions help reduce my taxes, that would be a huge plus also. As always, thanks for the show, Chris. 
There's one important clarification that I needed to answer this question, so I clarified it with Chris. And I asked him how much he planned to contribute, and he says, right now, our finances will allow us to contribute two to $3,000 per year. And the reason why that clarification is incredibly important is that this question could go in so many different ways, depending on what we're talking about. If Chris is saying, you know, I've got 50 million bucks and I'm trying to set aside a few million to cover my, you know, my nephew, then how can I do that? That's a very different planning scenario than two to three thousand dollars a year. So let's try to answer this in a couple different ways. First, I want to cover up front real quick the 529 plan. So there actually, Chris, is no account that will give you upfront tax benefits or reduce your current taxes other than the 529 account, which may, if you are in a state that you can deduct your state income taxes, may allow you to deduct a certain portion of your uh, state income taxes based upon your 529 um, contributions. It's actually easier to cover the states that don't allow the deduction 34 of the states and the District of Columbia do offer a deduction on state income taxes. The states that don't are California, Delaware, Hawaii, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Jersey, and Tennessee. Those states all have state income taxes, but they don't offer a state income tax deduction or a tax credit for contributing to that state's 529 plan. And then, of course, you've got the states that don't have state income taxes at all, which are Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. So the only so there, I'm not aware of any account that you would be able to use for this type of uh, scenario that would permit you to get any upfront tax benefits, any upfront deductions as far as current d- d- deductions, although I do have one account that will allow you to do that. I'll, I'll get to that at the end. It's kind of, a, kind of a trick. So kind of set that aside unless the state income tax deal is a good deal for you and you said you don't want to use a 529 plan because you don't want money to be restricted to education. So that's kind of done. So 529 plans out. The Coverdell Educational Savings Account, you could set one of those up for, for him, but that money has to be used for education. It's more flexible, so it can be used for primary or secondary education, but it has to be used for education. So that's not going to work. So toss that out for you. Then your only other exceptions of as far as accounts, you know, custodial accounts, if you actually want to make the transfer would be the UTMA, UGMA accounts. And those are problematic. And I'll explain. Well, let me. Those are problematic, and the primary reason that those are problematic is because you're making a transfer. So the reason the number is important. If we were doing estate planning and you're super rich and we're trying to make the transfer, then we might actually want to create what's called a completed gift, a completed transfer. We want to get the money out of your hands and into his hands. But in your situation, getting the money out of your hands into his hands is not really that big of a deal because what's the benefit? So if we transfer the money into a UTMA or UGMA account, an UPMA or an UGMA account, then that completes the gift. It's a custodial account where now your child, or excuse me, your nephew is the person who has the legal right to the account. But what happens is that automatically at the age of majority, whatever it is in your state, whether it's 18 or 21, automatically those assets become the property of the, of the child and the child can use them for any purpose. So 
I am not a fan of Atmaragma accounts generally. They have their place, but generally because you don't have any control over the money at 18 or 21, and they can use it on anything that they want, and that they are in, may or may not be in their best interest. If they're on crack, you know, all of a sudden you saved 80 grand, and now here's 80 grand. Well, they're going to be dead um, from overdosing on crack, and you don't have any legal authority in that case. And the other problem with those accounts is, depending on what their parents' tax rates are, is that in there you got to deal with kitty tax. So it used to be that the UGMA or UPMA accounts would allow you to avoid the, uh, you know, there didn't used to be kitty tax, but now if you're, if you have a minor who is receiving unearned income, from investment income, the first thousand bucks comes in tax free because of the way the brackets work. The second thousand bucks is taxed at whatever the miners' um, miners' rate is, which is you know zero or fifteen percent. It's basically nothing. So basically, anything over two thousand bucks, though, that will get taxed at the parents' marginal income tax bracket. So depending on what you have or don't have um, in this situation uh, with with your brother or brother brother in law, brother. It, you don't have to then you know that's not going to solve your problem so here's what I, and then you can do IRAs or Roth IRAs but he doesn't have any earned income yet if he's a baby so you can't do an IRA or Roth IRA so here's my deal um, you don't have a problem at two or three thousand bucks a year I would just toss the money into an account keep it as a separate account for your own mental accounting invest it however you want buy the index fund or do something like that and just you keep it and just accumulate the money knowing that you can give it to uh, to him in the future you're never going to have any issue with two or three thousand bucks a year you're never going to have any issue with making that transfer um, you're right now the annual gift tax exclusions are fourteen thousand bucks you can double that up for you and your wife so if you put two thousand bucks into the account let's say we've got eight 18 years, $2,000 is what we're going to put in. We're going to use 10% per year. We're going to start with nothing. At the end of 18 years, you're going to have $100,000 in the account. Well, well, as the gift tax, annual gift tax exclusions go up over time, you can just transfer that um, between you and your wife. You split it between the two of you and you split it over a year and you can just give the money to them at that point in time. And you can buy a tax efficient investment and, you know, index fund is not going to be a big deal. Uh, um, You know, you're going to be fine. So I wouldn't even make the gift. I would just set it aside. Now, some ideas, however, that I would focus on, I just I don't see any possible reason why you should make a gift into another account in the scenario that you illustrated. Keep it yourself so you have full control. The tax benefits are negligible as far as the growth. Um, none of the accounts, if you're not willing to put it into a college account, none of these accounts are going to save you money on the increasing uh, on the increases of taxes. The college accounts will do that. But um, So just keep it yourself. Buy an index fund and a taxable brokerage account. And don't even put his name on it. You just keep it. Now, here would be my, my thought to you. You mentioned things like non-traditional education. That's what I would use the money for. So I might not even vet and invest it. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I should have fixed my outline better. Buy him something he needs and focus on spending the money on him at an early age. So you become the wise uncle, the wise favorite uncle. Contribute to something that he specifically needs now. If that's a microscope because he's into science, or if that's a fancy computer because he's into web design, uh, into you know videography. If he needs a new camera, you know, buy him a starter camera. Spend the money on whatever those kinds of things are, and then you can just simply do it and and support him, and that will make a bigger difference long term in his life by having that. 
um, for him than the, the account will, than having just magically this, receiving this investment account. Spend the money on something that's going to help him. Buy him the extra classes. Buy him piano lessons or archery lessons or you know a geometry tutor or whatever it is that, that he needs. And, and invest in him in that way, and that investment will pay off much more in the long run. Or consider investing in a way that you can teach him. So, for example, look for a stock that he'll be interested in with a brand name and teach him how to invest in stocks and buy him shares of a company and teach him how to track it and teach him how to read the balance sheets and teach him how to read the annual reports and use that money so that it's actually a learning tool. Maybe invest in a, in his, in a business project. So if he has a, a business project at a young age, encourage him. Take him, take him and encourage him and, and be an investor and give him some seed capital, uh, invest in a house with him, teach him how to, to rehab a house or flip a house with him, buy him useful toys, take him to a seminar, You know, invest in business seminars and things that he can get exposed to the adult world uh, at an early age that's going to cost money that his parents may not be able to allocate for him, invest in that. Uh, buy him books and pay him money for giving you book reports on those. Pay for hosting um, fees to set up his website or to set up his podcast or to set up his YouTube channel or whatever he needs to do. Um, give him money and you know give him uh, silver coins or gold coins and teach him how teach him about the history of money. Uh, those types of things are going to be a bigger a bigger difference for you because you're not going to have any any problem of making this transfer down the road. And even if what I'm what I had forgotten to say earlier was even if you made the, let's say you have $100,000 in the account or $200,000 in the account, and now he wants to go to college. You don't even then you don't have a transfer problem because you can just you can just write the check to the to the college and 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 then so you don't even have to deal with the gift you don't have to deal with the gift tax you can just write the check to the college but the usefulness is you may write a check to a college or you may write a check so he can go to Europe and backpack around Europe for a year uh, or you may write so you're going to be fine so that's what I would do um, the only best idea that I have for you that would actually be deductible however and is my final idea is. Wait a few years, pile up the money, and then hire him to work for you and pay him wages. Pay him reasonable, fair wages. And then double his wages Set them so, and have him and match him and match him into a Roth IRA. And that's the way that you could actually get a deductible contribution that will actually help you on your taxes. Hire him in your business. Pay him wages. Those wages are fully deductible. He's only going to be making, you know, a few thousand bucks. So let's say it's two thousand uh, dollars. Hire, or let's say you ha- you're going to contribute two thousand dollars. Hire him. Pay him to work for you on Saturdays while he's in school. Pay him a thousand dollars. File a tax return. He reports the earned income on a thousand dollars, and then match him with a thousand dollars into the Roth IRA. Uh, into his own Roth IRA. Once he has earned income, he can participate in the Roth IRA. And so essentially what you've done is you've given him a $1,000 gift that he can spend on whatever he wants, and you match him into the Roth IRA. And so then he's got the money. He can use it for college. He can pull out, pull the money out for college. He can pull the money out for anything he wants to do along the way. And that's how you get a deductible contribution um, to your nephew. That's the best idea. But I think if you just ignore this whole like stupid 
you're not stupid. I'm just saying this is what our society says. Well, so the best way to help kids is to save money for them. No, the best way to help kids, my opinion, is to mentor them and to teach them and to share with them the wisdom and the things that you've learned. That's what makes a difference. Not spending money on them, not giving them a bunch of chunk, chunk of money for college, but taking them to Europe with you for a summer. Take them to Haiti for a summer. Go and build a, you know, go and build a school in in Ghana. Go and 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 spend the money on experiences and then allow them that will hopefully hopefully allow him to have a much better outlook on what he wants and he can make up the money you know that's the thing is is setting aside money for your nephew would be awesome but a hundred thousand bucks is not that big a deal to somebody who is capable and able to stand on their own two feet and is energetic and has started a couple of businesses and has been invested in by an uncle who took the time to spend time. $100,000 doesn't compare to that time. Uh, shoot, take the money and and take time off from work so you can spend time with him. Maybe his dad and mom don't have time. And so mentor him and take your time and do that. And I think that'll make a, be a much better investment than an index fund um, in, in some random account. <laughs> so I hope that helps. Uh, I really do. I love, I love the question. I think about this a lot with my nephews and nieces. I got a bunch of them and I've got some ideas for what I can do. I got more than one. <laughs> I got 10. So the question is, how do I actually negotiate that for myself that's it for today's show i i thank you all for listening i love doing these shows keep your questions coming i hope you like the variety i love the variety i like um I mean, some of it may be over, may not make sense. I mean, I went into I, gift taxes are so stupid and complicated, and I and you know you start tossing out gift taxes and annual exclusions and gift tax lifetime exemption amounts and you know IRAs and UTMAs and I didn't even mention you know you could I could do a twenty five oh three C trust and all this nonsense. So um, I just get simple, stay simple, keep things simple. My new favorite quote, as I mentioned on the show a few times, um, compli- what is it? I forgot it. Anyway, keep things simple. Thank you all for listening. Email me the questions, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. Twitter, find me at RadicalPF. Facebook.com slash RadicalPersonalFinance. Consider if this has been helpful to you, if this has been useful to you, consider joining the Irregulars. A lot of stuff going on. You can't see it on the surface, but I got a lot of stuff going on, and I am going to be – that's number one focus for this next year. Last six months, I think we proved this concept. Enough of you have signed up for the Irregulars that we proved the concept. Now it's my job to make this a world-class – um, financial education empire basically is what I'm going to do because it's it's needed. And so now my job is to to improve the quality, um, make things more professional, get better answers, um, get better things. So that's <laughs> that's my task. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Send me the questions. Call them in on the voicemail line and um, join the membership program. I'm out of here. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. 
Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not, and is not intended, to be any form of financial advice. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy. And consult them, because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow... Thanks for being here.